Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. You're listening to a Morbid Network podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person. And I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, the zen seeker, the artist, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, There's something for everyone on Etsy. A gifting moment is always around the corner. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Gift easy with Gift Mode on Etsy. The show you're about to listen to may contain themes of violence, occult activities, strong language, and other sensitive material. With an emphasis on cults, murder, and other adult matters, listener discretion is advised. On Cult Leader, I strive for telling stories in a truthful manner, though press, media, and other resources cannot always be verified. Sources can be found in the show notes. Welcome back to Cold Leader. I'm your cold leader, Spencer Henry, and well, it's just me today. That's right. We're back to being a solo act over here, but I sure had a blast having Madison join us for the Church of Satan episodes. If you haven't listened to them, go back. It's a, a real treat. And what are you doing skipping ahead? If you like what you heard, please be sure to join us at our live show at Irvine Improv on August 4th. We are so excited. Now listen, I just got home from therapy a little bit ago, and I was laughing in my car on my way home because well we got onto the topic of beliefs and religion i don't i don't know how it even came up but eventually i was like hey while we're on this topic i've been heavy into televangelism lately and she's like okay hold on i want to pause feel free to continue that thought after this but i i just wanted to make sure that we could get into any particular things that you wanted to make sure we talk about this week and i was like oh okay yeah hey why don't we do that why don't we talk about something that's beneficial to 
my mental health. And so then we started talking about other stuff. I guess good thing, but I just love that my therapist knows me so well because I fully would have talked about televangelist for the rest of the session, which I, I guess it's a good thing that I have a podcast where I can talk about these things, right? So if you were ever wondering, hey, what's Spencer thinking about when he's not doing cult leader? It's still this. I'm full in, baby. This is my life. It's just how my brain works. Speaking of, throughout our televangelist era, we've talked about all sorts of characters, and I'm actually deep into this church right now. I'll give you a hint. They're in North Carolina, and it's what the book I'm reading is about that I mentioned, I think, in the Little Leader last week. No, I haven't finished it, but I will be doing an episode on that church and its leader. But throughout my research for the past few months, I have learned a ton, and I mean a ton, about faith healing. I honestly feel like I could perform them. When we covered Peter Popoff, we went into his whole scam, let's call it what it is, and we discussed how he would throw people's canes and encourage his attendees to toss out their medication, which I mentioned in that episode is extremely dangerous, not practical. But in this week's episode, we're going to explore some stories of negligent homicide in relation to faith healing. And I want to re-emphasize, as I have been lately, that I am again never one to tear down somebody else's religious beliefs. You do you, but when it comes to putting somebody else's life in jeopardy, that's when we gotta take a long, hard look at some of the more extreme beliefs. By definition, faith healing is the practice of prayer and gestures, such as laying on of hands, that are believed by some to elicit divine intervention in spiritual and physical healing, especially the Christian practice. Believers will assert that the healing of disease and disability in some cases can be brought by religious faith through prayer or other rituals that, according to adherents, can stimulate a divine presence and power. Quote, religious belief in divine intervention does not depend on empirical evidence of evidence-based outcome achieved via faith healing. That's like the Wikipedia definition for you. What prompted this episode was actually a question that had been sort of bouncing around in my mind the past couple of weeks, which I think is what I wanted to ask my therapist her thoughts on, I believe, and, and maybe I still will. I'll report back. I wanted to know about the psychological mentality behind faith healing, and I can can phrase that better like faith healing psychology why why do people think it works what's going on here and i think that's literally what i googled when i went to look for answers from the internet gods and what i found was actually pretty fascinating i mean i really like learning about the psychology behind things i think that's why i like learning about cults i think it's why i like learning about the people that we talk about on this show i want to know why people do the things that they do i found a few articles that i wanted to pull from before we get into anything today There's this one article from Psychology Today that was written by Nigel Barber, who actually holds a PhD in biopsychology, which is a branch of psychology that focuses on how the brain and other aspects of our biology influence our behaviors, thoughts, and feelings. So I'm like, this is more so what I was looking for. In that article, he writes, quote, from a scientific perspective, faith healing is unexplained, incomprehensible, and should not work. Yet it does work. The same is true of drug placebo effects. 
scientists recognize that there are placebo effects but have trouble accounting for them. He says that if you grew up in a superstitious country, chances are you have experienced faith healing. And he talks about some superstitions from his own childhood in Ireland that would technically, categorically be defined as faith healing. Like there was someone in his town who could heal ringworm because he was the seventh son of the seventh son or something like that. He talks more about it in the article, which of course I'll I'll link the article for those interested. But he says that if there's a history of successful outcomes, then people who consult the faith healer are likely to show up because they've already had this positive expectation of cure, even if they consider themselves too sophisticated to be taken in by magical thinking. By means unknown, faith healing is evidently capable of boosting immune function. This would explain why minor lesions clear up faster than would otherwise be the case. If placebos account for half of the effects of non-surgical medicine, which may be too conservative, he writes, faith healing may be a trillion dollar industry in the US. And we know that faith healing has made a lot of people very wealthy. I think my biggest takeaway from that and why I wanted to read it is because he talks about the placebo effect component to all of this. And that to me makes perfect sense. I've mentioned in previous episodes when talking about this, that people sitting in these rooms in these churches where a person that they believe to be a prophet of sorts is making them feel empowered and it gives them like this adrenaline rush that suddenly everything's okay. They are acting 100% on pure faith. But what about the aftermath? We didn't really explore that area yet, which we're going to again today. In Nigel Barber's article, he refers to several ailments being healed quicker by our internal belief system speeding up the process or giving us an immune boost. But what about the more severe cases, people claiming to be healed by the practice? I'm talking those who have claimed to be cured of cancer or those who have received a more terminal diagnosis. Is that placebo effect enough to make some sort of mark? I wanted to read a little bit from one more article on the psychology of faith healing. This is by Dr. Harriet Hall, and then we'll get into our stories. But she's also known as the Skeptoc because she writes a lot about pseudoscience and questionable medical practices. In 2010, she wrote an article for sciencebasedmedicine.org where she said that faith healing is based on belief and is about as far as you can get from science-based medicine, but it is not exempt from science. If it really worked, science would be able to document its cures and would be the only reliable way to validate its effectiveness. Miraculous cures continue to be reported on a regular basis. What are we to make of them? In the Healing Rooms Ministry of Bethel Church in Redding, California, people regularly claim to be healed of cancer, broken bones, and other ailments. Page after page of testimonials of cures are listed on their websites. Are these cures real? If not, what's going on? Which we have to pause because I went to the Bethel.com website and clicked on testimonies and there are so many testimonies from everything, uh, parasites to tumors, digestive issues, you name it. I clicked on one from somewhat recent, March 27th, 2019, that said, throat cancer healed. And I'm going to read this verbatim. It says, an individual had stage four throat cancer and was just healed. He had been on hospice for almost two years and was expecting to die at any moment. He was weak, eating through a stomach tube, and had three separate times of bleeding. The first time he was in ICU. He said he was going and they were not to revive him. 
Then he became unconscious. And the person writing this is presumably a, a spouse or somebody who knows him. I declared life over him in his bed and he woke up after a bit. That was back in 2015. The hospital thought it would be imminent and his family was called to come say their goodbyes, but God had other ideas. The second and third time he bled, he went to the ER expecting to pass on and I kept praying over him each time. After the third time, they put him on hospice. That was about a year and a half ago. That takes us up to the present. His condition on hospice was he was expecting to die any moment of stage four throat cancer. He watched the Randy Clark School of Healing and Impartation on Bethel TV. It was at the end of the healing conference when Randy got word for a throat being healed. I looked over at Mark and said, that's for you. Mark had a CT scan on Monday. It came back as no lumps or masses. Today he had a visit from the hospice nurse and social worker and they told him they're taking him off hospice and his nurse said it was a miracle. I really got lost in the testimonies that were on there because there's just so many. I mean, there's ones from this year. People will write in about anything. And there was one woman who claimed to be healed from bipolar disorder. It says, we received this testimony from a woman in Australia. I was at home watching the Randy Clark School of Healing and Impartation at Bethel on YouTube as I cleaned my house. A word of knowledge for bipolar disorder was given. I felt God say, receive. So I laid on the floor. As I obeyed, I felt like I sunk into the floor and felt a manifestation of complete relaxation rest upon my entire body. It felt awesome, and I knew that something special had happened. Earlier this year, God told me that 2020 would be my year to get off my bipolar medication. I didn't know how he was going to do it because the medication had helped me survive for almost seven years and control lifelong migraines, but I trusted God and had faith that he would bring it to pass. I prepared myself for withdrawal symptoms as I had experienced bad days when I'd forgotten to take a dose. Then, one day, I felt God say, this is the day to take less. So I did. No symptoms whatsoever. I couldn't believe it. Together with my doctor, I continued to lower my dose. It is now May of 2020 and I'm completely off my bipolar meds and feeling good. I've not had one migraine either, so I guess God gave me a double portion and healed my migraines too. Praise God. And this is the thing. They're all watching the Randy Clark healing videos online and then writing in these testimonies. So what do we think about that? Going back to that article from Dr. Harriet Hall, she talked talks about the aftermath of faith healing and says there are many, many reports where follow-up found that the patients were still just as sick or worse off than before. Patients who quote-unquote get up and walk may not be healed. In one unfortunate case, a woman was encouraged to get up out of her wheelchair and discard her braces at the church. The faith healer proclaimed her healed, and unfortunately, her cancer of the spine had weakened her bones, and the activity caused bones in her spine to collapse. She died not long after. The faith healing hastened her death and caused her unnecessary necessary agony. For the faith healer and the witnesses at church and for the patient herself that day, it appeared to be a miraculous healing. They couldn't have been more wrong. Incidentally, many of the faith healing patients who get up out of a wheelchair and walk had actually walked into the church and been offered wheelchairs they didn't really need, which is something that we've also seen come up a lot. And then she also touches on miraculous cancer recoveries and says that there's many cases of spontaneous remission, but they're rare. There's other explanations that are more likely. Many cancer cure claims involve cases that were never proven to be cancer by biopsy, so they were never known to be cancer in the first place. Lastly, she said that many years ago that the American Medical Association used to have a regular feature where there would be a testimonial on one page describing how a patient was cured of cancer. On the opposite page, they would print the patient's death certificate showing that he had died. The explanations for most alleged cancer cures are that the patient never had cancer, was a biopsy done, a cancer was cured,
cured or put into remission by proven therapy, the cancer is progressing but is erroneously represented as slow or cured, the patient has died as a result of the cancer but is represented as cured, and lastly that the patient had a spontaneous remission, which again is very rare or slow-growing cancer that is publicized as a cure. But this all really had me thinking because I know firsthand from anxiety even, the physical effects can be very evident at times. I know that the mind and our brains can make us physically feel worse, so I guess it only makes sense that they can also make us feel better, right? I don't know. I mean, do I think that you can miraculously be cleared of ailments because of prayer? Unfortunately, I do not, but I do believe that our immune system is intertwined with our mentality, but not in the sense of, oh, I can be cured. I don't know. I'm not a doctor, okay? This is just me relaying my thoughts to you and personal opinions because, well, this is my show and I can do that. I know we have cult babes with expertise in all things medical and pertaining to religion and psychology, so I welcome any and all thoughts around this. I genuinely have a lot of curiosity on this subject matter, clearly. Faith healing is prevalent in a lot of religions. It's not just dedicated to one. It may go by different names. Of course, we have it in Christianity and Catholicism, but Buddhism, the LDS Church, Scientology, all have their own practices of healing within their respective organizations, and unfortunately, it can sometimes end in death. I have a little story that I want to start with, which is the infamous arrest of Jack Coe in 1956, because it's just ironic and wild, and then we're going to work our way up to some present stories of deadly consequences because of faith healing. But Jack Coe is notorious for being one of the first faith healers in the United States, and boy did he know his way around a tent revival. Born in Oklahoma, he was the seventh child born to parents George and Blanche. At some point around his ninth birthday, he had been dropped off at an orphanage where sadly he would remain for the rest of his childhood and teenage years until he was about 17 years old. This was the result of his father's addiction to gambling and alcoholism, something Jack struggled with himself when he left the orphanage later on in life. Life in the co-household when he was growing up was pretty chaotic. They were constantly having to center their lives around George's gambling, and it actually got so bad that he gambled away not only the family's furniture, but eventually the house as well, which appeared to be the final straw for the mom Blanche. She packs up the kids and moves to Pennsylvania, where I believe she had grown up, to get a fresh start, put down some roots, but eventually old George came knocking at the door asking for another chance, which she gave him as long as he promised to clean up his act. And he tried, he did, he tried, but eventually once again found himself succumbing to his gambling addiction and Blanche decided once again that she would just need to uproot and start over anew. But this time she only took her daughters with her, leaving nine-year-old Jack and his 12-year-old brother in the care of their father, who we know was just not capable of even the basics when it came to providing for them. I mean, that is such a sad scenario. Like, okay, your mom's just gonna leave you guys here with your dad, who has literally gambled away your house before. Eventually, Blanche does go back and pick up Jack and his brother, but she could not care for them for that long after that, so she ended up being the one to drop them off at the orphanage. An already sad situation becomes even worse. Jack's older brother runs away when he finds out they're going to the orphanage and ends up getting struck by a vehicle and dying as a result of the injuries he sustained in the accident. I mean, talk about a traumatic childhood. After leaving the orphanage, Jack struggled to find his place in society, and much like his father, he did his best to numb himself with alcohol, which according to Jack, 
back led to an onslaught of medical issues from an enlarged heart to the development of ulcers. His doctors told him that if he didn't quit drinking, he'd likely not live for much longer. So he decides to get his shit together, moves out to California where his mom Blanche was now living. And he claims that during that time period, he prayed to God to give him another chance and miraculously he was healed. Following his commitment, he began attending church in California and he would go to services in the morning and night and would eventually completely devote his entire life to the church. In 1941, Jack joins the army after the bombing of Pearl Harbor but remained committed to his faith, still attending services on a nightly basis and apparently also undergoing semi-frequent mental health checks. He had several revelations during this time that led him to believe that he possessed the ability to heal others through prayer and he would read about other famous healers of the past. Cut to three years later, in 1944, he's sent home after becoming sick with malaria, which he also maintained God healed so that he could preach the gospel. We're starting to hear some some real prophecies here. He ends up becoming an ordained minister after returning to California, and in 1945, he hosts his first healing meeting in Texas, which was all part of God's plan for him. He announced in a church that God was going to heal the sick, cause the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. And that's really the beginnings of his ministry and he starts just traveling all over the country and we know doing these tent revivals according to healingandrevival.com in 1946 god actually spoke to jack coe and his wife juanita i guess he got married sorry we're telling kind of like the mini version of his life story here we're not going too deep into it to sell their house and start an itinerant ministry. He lost his childhood home because his dad took it away. Now God's saying, you got to get rid of this house and you got to hit the road. So they purchased a beat up truck and a ministry tent and began to live on the road. And I'm like, what do you do in this situation? Like, what do you think Juanita is thinking here? Because let me tell you this. If I was married and we had a house together, I love my house, right? And they said, hey, listen, have this revelation. God wants us to sell the house so that we can drive around in a car that probably doesn't have air conditioning yet and go do tent revivals. I'd be like, I'm going to hold down the fort over here while you go do that. But maybe, maybe I'm not so supportive, but I just don't know how I would react to that. In 1948, God spoke to Jack and told him to go to Redding, California. He goes there. He apparently heals this woman whose leg was about to be amputated. News spreads throughout Redding and they're like, okay, this is where we need to be right now. We have all this money because people are starting to pay us to be healed. So they set down roots there for a little bit. Much like sister Amy McPherson, Jack didn't care what you looked like, who you were, what you did, what the color of your skin was, as long as you attended his sermons and only his sermons. Yes, Jack had acquired quite the ego during his revival days. I love this. He would send people to competing tent revivals and measure the tents that other preachers were using to ensure that he had the largest tent of all the tent revivals. I mean, come on, Jack, doesn't the Bible say something about this? I know that's a sin. That's a gluttony or something. Well, this becomes his main gig for the next few years until he makes his way to radio, as we know many were doing at the time, but he had to make sure that his was heard on more stations than others. And eventually Jack Coe's radio ministry was being broadcasted on over 100 different radio stations. His big ego and desperation for more eventually got him kicked out of the Assembly of God Church, who he had been affiliated with. So in 1953, Jack ends up going to Dallas.
Dallas and opens up the Dallas Revival Center, which is where he really started doing the wild stuff. Like, hold your cane, Peter Popoff, because Jack Coe is there fucking ripping people out of their wheelchairs, claiming to heal all through prayer. His services became so sought after that he ended up opening a faith home, which was like this center where people could go and they could stay for a couple hours or days or sometimes weeks at a time to be prayed over. Of course, you'd pay for it. And it's like a hospital run by prayer is how I envision this happening. He had finally achieved this dream life where he had the big house. He owned the church. He owns this center and he has people that are just devouring his every word. And he believes, I believe he believes, he thought he could truly heal people. But healing people would end up bringing Jack to his downfall. He had set up shop in Miami, Florida in 1955. He was still living in Texas, but he had just been out there doing a revival service when he met this young couple that was desperate to heal their three-year-old son of polio. Without hesitation, Jack tells the parents to remove the son's leg braces, which they did after Jack claimed he had healed the kid. The removal caused the child to be in constant agonizing pain, and after that, Jack was arrested and charged with a felony for practicing medicine without a license. Apparently, the judge dismissed the case on the grounds that Florida exempts divine healing from the law, which is like, what? So you can just do whatever you want, I guess. The the legalities of all this, which we'll get more into, is very confusing to me. But get this. Just months later, November 1956, after he's acquitted of his charges, 38-year-old Jack Coe is hosting a revival in Arkansas when he falls ill. He ends up going back home to Texas and he undergoes a tracheotomy because he's having trouble breathing, he's having trouble with muscle movement, and, well, Jack is diagnosed with polio, of all things. The same thing that he had just got off charges for falsely claiming to heal that child of polio. Jack ended up dying the following month on December 16th, 1956, as a result of the polio. Very ironic. The court case was one of the first times that a faith healer or perhaps the first time that a faith healer was ever put on trial for practicing medicine. Sad life, beginning and end. Cult Leader is sponsored by BetterHelp. Cult Babes, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Are you hitting the gym, hitting the sheets for a little nap, looking at your neighbor's house on Zillow? Really though, if time was unlimited, how would you use it? How would you decide what's important enough to make time for? Unfortunately, time is not unlimited, but fortunately, therapy can help you figure out what matters to you so you can do more of it. That's one of my biggest takeaways from therapy, figuring out where to devote time to make the rest of my life easier. I could go on forever about how much less stressful life is once I learn to prioritize my time, but why don't you see for yourself? Give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash leader today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash leader. This episode is brought to you in part by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like The Guest List by Lucy Foley. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member... 
Choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. We're now going to shift our focus over to the followers of Christ Church in Oregon for the next little bit here who are also against medicine. They believe that faith heals all and well, if you die, that's God's will. And let me tell you, this church has a running list of controversy and, well, death. According to a 1998 analysis by the Oregonian, of the 78 children that were buried at that church's cemetery between 1955 and 1998, almost one-third of them could have been saved had there been medical intervention, which this statistic, even though it comes from the 90s, I can't imagine where it's at now, is both wild and maddening. The stories that I came across broke my heart, and I mean, we're going to talk about a lot of different stories today, some of them very recent, and this is just fucked, I'm sorry, and It's where I personally draw the line between religious freedom and ethics. It was March 2nd of 2008 when 15-month-old Ava Worthington died at home from bronchial pneumonia as well as a blood infection. Prior to falling ill, Ava was what you would consider to be a pretty healthy baby. However, when she was around three months old, a cystic growth appeared on her neck, which easily could have been taken care of by medical professionals. In fact, all of her illnesses could have, but her parents, Carl and Raylene Worthington, were members of the Followers of Christ Church, and they believed that none of this was a concern because they would just pray it away. When Ava took a turn for the worse on that day in March, her parents did not call the doctors. They did not call 911. They called over fellow church members instead to pray for them as they anointed her with oil, quote, giving Ava a dab of wine with water, while they fasted and prayed over her for the next 24 hours. 15-month-old Ava passed away and neither Carl nor Raylene thought to call the authorities, even after she passed. It was God's will. Carl and Raylene were eventually arrested and they went to trial where even a doctor told the court that Ava could have been saved at any point during her illness even after she stopped breathing because there was no effort to revive her or perform CPR or call an ambulance or paramedics to intervene. They dropped all charges against Raylene and she was allowed to walk free while Carl was convicted only of criminal mistreatment and he was sentenced to two months in jail which is just bullshit and I don't care. I don't want to hear it. It's 100% negligent homicide and it should be treated as such. If as an adult you want to decide whether or not you want to receive medical treatment for your ailments or illnesses, hats off. Do you, whatever. But when it comes to a child, let alone an infant, absolutely not. The judge required the family to provide proof of medical treatment moving forward for their five-year-old living child, as well as the child Raylene was pregnant with at the time of the sentencing. Carl Worthington was the first of hopefully many future convictions for the church's approach to medicinal matters. And we're going to pause for the definition of the day. Negligent homicide. A criminal charge brought against a person who, through criminal negligence, allows another person to die, which is exactly what's happening here, and I don't know why people, including Carl Worthington and Raylene Worthington, are not being held accountable, or the dozens of other people that just let this happen. Okay, are you ready for this? This is a a twist of sorts. That same year, we have another story involving the death of a 16-year-old kid named Neil Beagley, the younger brother 
of Raylene Worthington. Shortly after Raylene managed to avoid charges in the death of her daughter, her parents, Jeffrey and Marcy Beagley, sat in the same courtroom with the same judge and faced the same charges of criminally negligent homicide for failing to obtain medical care for their 16-year-old son, which resulted in his death in June of 2008. So literally three months after baby Ava had passed away. At the trial, the judge called Neil's death crime that was a product of an unwillingness to respect the boundaries of freedom of religious expression. This Neil kid had a urinary tract obstruction, is what they called it, which could have easily been taken care of by medical professionals, which I'm sensing a theme here. And while we know they don't believe in medicine at this church, but it's a little more complicated in this case because baby Ava was 15 months old. Neil was 16 and he had apparently told his parents that he did not want to receive medical assistance because it goes against their beliefs and that he believed he would be healed through prayer, as did his parents. They too invited church members over instead of calling 911 and reportedly over 100 members of that church came to their house to pray over their dying son. At their sentencing, the judge, Judge Marr, spoke out about the followers of Christ's church and its members. Too many children have died unnecessarily, he said. There's a graveyard full of their bodies and it has to stop. It just has to stop. He ended up sentencing both Marcy and Jeffrey to 16 months in prison and said that the sentence could be a pause for reflection or re-examination for the followers of Christ Church. Everyone was shocked in the courtroom that day. Obviously the family's supporters and fellow churchgoers, but on the other side, the prosecutor of the case, this guy Greg Horner, was like, hey, what's going on? Before the sentencing, he said that the court has the opportunity to deliver a clear message that this idea that one can let a child die while they're praying without medical attention is not supportable. It must be addressed, he said. That lifetime of loving was erased by the days and weeks and months in the future to provide the very basics of what a parent is required to do. Yes, Greg, we agree with you, Greg. And it's not just these individual churches to blame. Should they be held responsible? I mean, it's hard to pinpoint who exactly to blame in scenarios like this because you want to just blame everyone. I mean, sure, the churches and their leaders are definitely responsible for spreading misinformation. But at the end of the day, the parents of these children are the ones refusing to get them help in that moment. So I feel like that's maybe where the blame falls. And it's hard because from everything we've learned about how cults operate or this cult-like mentality, it's the same thing here where people are being brought to believe something that could end up harming them or the people that they care for. I'm purely just looking at this from like a legal standpoint. I'm also, again, not here to ruffle feathers, but I am firm in my beliefs that if a child is unwell and on the brink of possibly dying, there has to be medical intervention. I just cannot imagine believing in something so deeply that I would hold my child as they died from something that could be prevented. I can't. I don't know. I mean, I don't think these people are going out like, oh, I'm gonna murder my child, but they're just in too deep. That's why I believe that it's, again, negligent homicide. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash Wondery, code Wondery. When you get HubSpot Sales Hub, it's like getting a new teammate, an efficient, organized, helpful teammate who's also super easy to work with. 
The kind of teammate who reduces everyone else's busy work with a new prospecting workspace. A teammate who keeps the entire team focused and on track with easy-to-use deal management tools. A teammate who won't jockey for your promotion or microwave leftover shrimp scampi in the break room. Learn how you can close deals faster and crush your revenue goals with Sales Hub at HubSpot.com sales. I know we kind of got caught up in that particular church, but it's obviously not just them. The Guardian did an excellent write-up, which included an interview with someone named Mariah Walton, who had first-hand experience as a victim to the negligence. This article was written in 2016 by Jason Wilson, and the article's titled, Letting Them Die, Parents Refuse Medical Help for Children in the Name of Christ. Quote, Mariah Walton's voice is quiet. Her lungs have been wrecked by her illness, and her respirator doesn't help but her tone is resolute. Yes, I would like to see my parents prosecuted. Why? They deserve it, she pauses, and it might stop others. Mariah is 20, but she's frail and permanently disabled. She has pulmonary hypertension, and when she's not bedridden, she has to carry an oxygen tank that allows her to breathe. At times, she's had screws in her bones to anchor in her breathing device. She may soon have no option for a cure except a heart and lung transplant, an extremely risky procedure. And all of this could have been prevented in her infancy by closing a small congenital hole in her heart. It could have even been successfully treated in later years, before irreversible damage was done, but Mariah's parents were fundamentalist Mormons who went off the grid in northern Idaho in the 90s and refused to take their children to doctors, believing that illnesses could be healed through faith and the power of prayer. As she grew sicker and sicker, Mariah's parents would pray over her and use alternative medicine. Until she finally left home two years ago, she did not have a social security number or a birth certificate. Had they been in neighboring Oregon, her parents parents could have been booked for medical neglect. Well, depending on the judge, I mean, they could have gotten, what, a 16-month sentence or a two-month sentence like Carl Worthington? In Mariah's case, as in scores of others of instances of preventable death among children in Idaho since the 70s, laws exempt dogmatic faith healers from prosecution, and she and her sister recently took part in a panel discussion with lawmakers at the state capitol about the issue. Idaho is one of only six states that offers a faith-based shield for felony crimes such as manslaughter. Some of those enjoying legal protection are fringe Mormon families like Mariah's, many of whom live in the state's north, but a large number of children have died in southern Idaho near Boise in families belonging to a reclusive Pentecostal faith healing sect called the Followers of Christ. So her parents weren't connected to the Followers of Christ Church. However, Followers of Christ Church has a branch in Idaho as well as Oregon. That article, I'm going to link the entire Guardian one because it's really good. There's another story in there from this guy named Brian Hoyt, who grew up in Boise, Idaho, as part of the Followers of Christ Church, and his story was heartbreaking. Quote, He lost his faith around the age of five when a baby died in his arms in the course of a failed healing. While elders prayed, Hoyt was in charge of removing its mucus with a suction device. He was told that the child died because of his own lack of faith. Something snapped and he remembers saying, how could this possibly be God's work? His apostasy set up lifelong conflicts with his parents and church elders. In just one incident, when he was 12, Hoyt broke his ankle during a wrestling tryout. I ended up shattering two bones in my foot, he said. His parents approached the situation 
situation with the usual follower's remedies, rubbing the injury with rancid olive oil and having him swig on kosher wine. Intermittently, they would have him attempt to walk and each time my body would just go into shock and I would pass out. When I was a kid, I would wake up to my stepdad, my uncles, and a bunch of other elders of the church kicking me and beating me, calling me a fag because I didn't have enough faith to let God come in and heal me while my mom and aunts were sitting there watching and that's called faith healing. He has a great story. He ended up making it out of there and advocating for other children in a similar position. While we're on the topic of people that had firsthand experience, there are people that have realized later on the mistake that they made and advocated so that it wouldn't happen again. And one of those people who I think is probably the most prominent person to have some sort of awakening or come to Jesus moment is Rita Swan. Now Rita founded CHILD, which stands for Children's Healthcare is a Legal Duty in 1983. And it was because of her own experience with the Christian Science Church. In their mission statement, she says, quote, in 1977, Doug, her husband, and I lost our only son, Matthew, because of trusting Christian science practitioners to heal him. Our experience is described in my memoir, The Last Strawberry, which is where she writes about the death of her son in that book. And she said, we left the Christian science church immediately after his death and within a year decided that harm to children from faith healing should be a public issue. And she talks about her experience even trying to bring it up and what a hard time she had with it. I mean, because this is before social media. She was hoping that somebody else would help her get her story out, but people just wouldn't. She said, I made several attempts to get the print media to cover Matthew's death. Newspapers would not touch it, even as a letter to the editor. The editor for the newspaper where we lived said the letter was very out of line, and I could get them in a lot of trouble. In 1978, we moved to North Dakota and had my baby daughter. 1979 was International Year of the Child. I promised myself on New Year's Day that I would do something every day that year to bring Matthew's death to public attention. It's just fuck so sad. I got rejection slips from popular magazines and didn't even know where to find the fledging child protection organizations. I was nursing a baby in a North Dakota farmhouse and had no computer. In the late summer, I read about a group of women attorneys meeting in Albuquerque to discuss child abuse. I asked to speak to them and the women in charge said grudgingly that I could speak at their gathering for 10 minutes, but she should be aware in advance that most of the participants would disagree with me. I plan to drive there and do that. In September, I had decided to try the broadcast media and wrote Phil Donahue. A producer called immediately and we became Donahue's only guests for an hour on national television because the Christian Science Church refused to face us. We were the first persons to speak voluntarily and publicly about the loss of a child because of Christian Science and we still are the only ones to do so. We received over 600 letters from Donahue viewers. Several asked us to establish a charitable organization so they could donate to it. Our whole family suggested various names with clever acronyms such as Prevent Religiously Oriented Death prod. That one's so bad, I might not be remembering it correctly. But then we eventually decided it was better to say what we're for rather than what you are against and arrived at children's healthcare is a legal duty. The work that they did and are doing is just incredible. The organization no longer exists as of 2017, but Rita has continued to do her advocacy work. On their website, thechildrenshealthcare.org, I found a ton of stories from very similar 
situations to the Ava Worthingtons and the Neil Beagleys. Like there's this 11 year old kid named Ian Lundman who died in 1989 because his parents were part of the Christian Science Church. Ian's dad had actually already left the church, but his mom had gotten remarried and her and the stepdad were still in the church and they had custody of Ian. When he started to get sick, he was noticeably losing weight. He was becoming lethargic and he was also displaying like classic diabetes symptoms. But again, the mom and the dad just believed that he could be healed through prayer. So they retained a Christian science practitioner for spiritual treatment of whatever Ian's illness was. And the practitioner billed them $446 for his prayers over two days. And then it says, quote, an unlicensed Christian science nurse sat by Ian's bedside for the last five hours of his life as he lay in a diabetic coma. She knew that he did not respond to anyone. She observed his vomiting, labored breathing, excessive urination, facial spasms, and clenched teeth. Nevertheless, her concept of care was to give him drops of water through a straw and to tie a sandwich bag and washcloth around his genitals. She did not call for medical help or ask his mother to obtain it. Ian's father filed a wrongful death suit against the mom, stepfather, Christian science practitioner, as well as the nurse in the Christian science church, and a jury awarded him $5 million in compensatory damages and $9 million in punitive damages. During the trial, the Christian Science Church was just like, we're going to practice our religion as we always have. It's horrible. It talks about the Neil Beagley case and gives a little more information. It says that the mom, Marcy Beagley, kept a feeding journal where she recorded that he was barely eating anything, sometimes just a spoonful of food for eight days and was even being fed baby food. And still, she did nothing about it and was only sentenced to 16 months in jail. It's fucking horrible. I read another story about this kid named Austin Sprout, who was a 16-year-old attending high school in Oregon. His family was part of the Church of the Firstborn. His appendix ruptured, and he was sick for over a week, almost two weeks with flu-like symptoms. Instead of getting him help, the parents just had people come over and pray as his condition continued to worsen. There's several other stories on here about children displaying symptoms of diabetes and just their families doing nothing to help them. And a lot of them, you'll see, like, the parents are getting charged or they're being brought to court but then they're released because of the religious exemptions with the laws in a lot of states and this is still i mean these are these are recent stories happening november 28th 2007 dennis Lindbergh died at a children's hospital in seattle after he and his guardian refused transfusions on the basis of their jehovah's witness faith dennis was in eighth grade had just turned 14 and he was diagnosed with acute lymphocytic leukemia and the doctors recommended a three-year program of chemotherapy and reportedly warned that many blood transfusions would also be necessary to prevent fatalities from the chemotherapy but because they're Jehovah's Witnesses they couldn't accept the transfusions but wanted the best medical treatment available without blood so they did the chemotherapy treatments but they stopped because Dennis developed severe anemia and an enlarged heart. On the website's little write-up about him it says on November 26 Dennis's grandmother contacted child and we advised her to contact CPS. They immediately contacted the biological parents, flew them to Seattle and arranged a court hearing the next morning. CPS petitioned for custody and the parents told the court they wanted their son transfused. The judge ruled that Dennis was a mature minor who made the independent choice to die. What the fuck? 
In 2012, Arian Jade Grandin, 15-year-old, died at her home in Parma, Idaho. She'd been sick and nauseous, vomiting for three days, became super weak, and was unconscious for five hours and then suffered cardiac arrest. The pathologist found gastrointestinal hemorrhage and a ruptured esophagus. Her parents belonged to the Followers of Christ Church. And again, family, friends, called to the home, but nobody called for medical help. Shantae Walker, four-year-old, died of meningitis in Sacramento. Sacramento, California in 1984. Her mom was part of the Christian Science Church, didn't get her medical treatment when she was homesick for 17 days. School didn't report it to CPS, which I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? I guess her aunt actually was the one who threatened to call the police because she was comatose. But the mom was like, no, and took her to a Christian scientist practitioner's home where she died. And she was only 29 pounds when she passed away. Sorry, that is a cult-like mentality. And that is just, it's wrong. It's unethical and it's inhumane. But that is where we're going to leave it for the week. Sorry, I feel like just a very heightened emotion episode, but it does. It makes me very emotional. It makes me very upset that this is happening. But also, I'm happy that I know that it's happening so that I, I can share this because I know we have a lot of people that listen from different backgrounds and all walks of life. Who knows? Somebody could have a friend who is part of one of these groups and be able to intervene somehow. You never know. We'll leave it there for the week. At the end of the day, I hope that they continue to tighten the laws around this negligence and and it changes and hopefully years from now, children will not be subjected to this abuse because that's what it is. I'm going to try and put together some resources that I can find. Rita's was one that I wanted to donate to, but then I found out that they were no longer available. So if there's any resources you guys know about, please let let me know. I will be sharing as many as I can find. I'll share them on the Little Leader this week and I'll also share them online at Cult Leader Podcast on Instagram. But that is it for this week. I will see you guys next time. Until next time, there are just some things you cannot pray away. Goodbye. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Cult Leader early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen early and ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. This episode is brought to you by the effortlessly scrumptious bite of Skinny Pop Popcorn. Imagine this, perfectly popped, endlessly delicious kernels, a symphony of just three simple ingredients, popcorn, sunflower oil, and a sprinkle of salt. No compromise, just pure snacking freedom. And hey, if you're up for a twist, dive into flavors like zesty white cheddar to sweet and salty kettle. Every bite's a delight, light and oh so tasty. Shop Skinny Pop now.